Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the truths of your word. I pray tonight that as we look into the Bible, I pray that you would strengthen us, help us to ever keep our eyes on why we do what we're doing here. And I pray that you would use it to make us more like Jesus Christ. Bless our time together. Guide and lead us, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight because I want you to either see or hear the scriptures. And I don't want us to take a lot of time looking for Bible verses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, divvy up the auditorium in various ways and ask one part of, of the crowd to turn to one passage and read it with me and then the other part of the crowd to turn to another passage and read it with me. And so you'll either be looking at it or you'll be hearing it. And I guess if you're super clever, you can turn and look at both, and that's fine if you want to, if you want to be a little daredevil. So um, let's start this way, okay? Everybody over here on this side right now, turn to John chapter 4, and everybody over here, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, all right? So John chapter 4 over here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 over here. And while you're turning, let me begin by reviewing some of what we've learned over the last couple of weeks. First of all, Christian doctrine is the foundational teachings upon which all of Christianity is built as given to us in the Bible. I know that's a very basic statement, but I think it needs to be stated. We start there. Christian doctrine is the foundational teachings upon which all of Christianity is built as given to us, very important, as given to us in the Bible. Three reasons why we should be students of Bible doctrine. First of all, Romans 6.17 tells us that Bible doctrine changes your life. Secondly, 1 Timothy 4.16 tells us that Bible doctrine keeps you and the people you love on the right path. And thirdly, 1 Timothy 4, 6 tells us that Bible doctrine nourishes you. And we said a few weeks ago, theology is the study of God. It's the science of God. And we said that the Bible is the sole authority for every Christian's study of God. And then the last time, I think that we, or the time before last, I told you about systematic theology. Systematic theology is a method of studying God that organizes all of the doctrines of the Bible into basic categories. Okay, now I mentioned a little while ago biblical theology. Biblical theology is teaching God in the order that it's found in the Bible. So in other words, we would start at Genesis 1.1, and uh, just keep going through the Bible until we got to, and we would study God that way. And that's basically what we do on Wednesday nights. But it's, it's sort of, okay, if you were going to study, say, the stars, you would not expect to just look up in the sky and say, okay, we're going to start with that one over there, and uh, then we're going to study that one, and then that one, and then that one. No. You're going to study the stars, and I always get the words astronomy and astrology mixed up. Which one's the good one? Astronomy, okay. And uh, I'm going to be psychic up here, but uh, astronomy is the good one, right? Okay. 
but if you're going to study astronomy and if a teacher's going to teach you, he's going to break it down into categories and, and so forth. He's going to have a, a system that he's going to teach you. All right, and so to, to really study God, we, it's helpful to take it and put it into categories in a system based upon centuries of people that we admire and respect having already studied the Bible, and we follow in their, uh, their studies, and we do our own study and add to it, and we compare everybody. We don't take any one person's opinion as the light. You get in trouble when you do that. <clears throat> that's, why, that's what's so crazy about Reformed theology. It's all based on uh, one dude named Calvin. We, no, we compare and we, we look and so forth. And so, systematic theology. Now, a lot of preachers, if you said, I, I'm teaching uh, systematic theology, they go, you're out of your mind. We think you are a Bible college professor. I'm no Bible college professor. I'm no university professor. We are simplifying it. Because I'm telling you, if, if you want to just pick up one of the books that I've mentioned and just read it, you'd be cross-eyed within about 10 minutes. And I don't mean, I'm so brilliant, I can read it, you can't. No, I get cross-eyed in about 10 minutes. I'm going, why do I got to read it? I, I plow through a whole lot, because these, what they do is, is uh, they give you all of the history of philosophy contrary to the truth, a lot of them do, before they give you the truth. And I'm the kind of reader that I'm always afraid I'm going to miss something if I skip over a paragraph. That's why I really get bogged down. So anyway, but boy, they can, they can really make you, oh, well, why do I have to learn about the wrong way before I learn about the right way? And you learn about mysticism and that, you know, there's, there's uh, eight basic views on this theory. And so you got to read all the wrong ones before you get to the Bible one. That's what I'm saying. It'll make you cross-eyed in about 10 minutes. So what we're doing is to try to not get super philosophical or super controversial and just stick with the simple things of what the Bible says. Now, it may take a while. I'm talking about it may take a lot of Sunday nights to get through, but but listen, we're talking about God. So you're going to like it. If you don't like it, your appetites, you know, need, need some adjustment. So First of all, the first category, remember I gave you, I don't know how many now, was there, was there 10 or was there 12? I've got them all written down in my, in my master outline that, uh, that I've put together. But we're going to take them one at a time, and then we're going to break each one of them down. And the first section was God. I remember last time, two Sunday nights ago, we talked about the existence of God. And the bottom line, I love this, I love this, the bottom line about what the Bible teaches about the existence of God is that God doesn't take any time trying to prove his existence. Remember, I went through several several different uh, philosophical and things that men have come up with, why there has to be a God. And it's all great, and I'm for it, and I've used it myself. But when God writes his book, not one word in there is used to say, let me prove to you why I have to be real. He just starts out with, in the beginning with God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. I was going John 1 there uh, instead of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Bang. 
Like it or lump it. Love it or list it. Anyway, um, like it or lump it. So the bottom line of what the Bible has to say about the existence of God is the Bible says God exists. Point two, you know, really, God doesn't take any time whatsoever in the Bible trying to prove to us, and so we covered that last time. So here we're going to go with the attributes of God. Now, I remind you, I gave you last time the uh, seven main resources that I'm using, and I read them all, I compare them all, I try to be thorough as I can, I don't want to miss anything, I'm not going to give you that list again. By the way, if, if, uh, if you I'm tempted to take notes, but I want to listen, whatever, some point, okay, as we go through this, I will give you the outline. I will make available to you the outline of everything that I'm giving to you because I'm keeping track of it in a master document that can easily be uh, printed and, and I'll have it bound and you can buy it for 10 bucks or whatever so that all these notes and the scriptures and the statements will all be together in one place for you. So uh, if you want to take notes, fine, but if you want to just listen and soak it in, it'll be available to you at some point. The attributes of God, okay? Based on everything I've looked at, all the different, uh, the, the people that I, that I told you about last time, I have uh, broken it down, and, and one, of the, one of the scholars in particular breaks the attributes down, attributes of God, into two groups. Now, he had a different name, and I'm just going to say the name and you're not going to like it, and that's going to be why I didn't go with his name. I went with my own, okay? His name were the uh, non-communicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. And I don't know about you, I've only ever heard that word used in one context, and I said, I am not going to use that in this context. So I went with transferable, all right? The non-transferable attributes of God and the transferable attributes of God. What that means is there are attributes of God that he can bestow or make available to his creation, like holiness. God is holy. Be, he says, I am holy, be holy for I am holy. So that's a transferable attribute. We'll never be as holy as God is, but we can be holy as God is holy. So that is a transferable attribute. But God is omnipresent. <laughs> well, that one, no, no. I, we're not going to have that one, all right? So that is a non-transferable attribute of God. You get that? So there's non-transferable attributes of God and there are transferable attributes of God, okay? And so I'm going to give you first the non-transferable attributes of God. And I want to say, I'm going to give you five tonight. There's 18 altogether. So, I mean, at this rate, we'll probably still be like May and still talking about the attributes of God, okay? But uh, still talking about the non-transferable attributes of God. But I want you to soak them in. And listen, you're not going to be, I'm not going to give you a university-level philosophical explanation on these things. And the primary reason I'm not going to is because I couldn't if I wanted to. I'm just not that smart. So lucky for you, I'm going to give it to you on the bottom shelf because that's all I got, all right? And so the non-transferable attributes of God. So some of these things 
I'm going to move on to point two, and you're going to say, wait a second, I haven't fully digested point one yet. Well, it may be that point one is not fully digestible or comprehensible by a human mind. And since I haven't comprehended it yet, I can't help you to comprehend it, so I give it to you and we move on to the next point. I'm going to give you five tonight. Five non-transferable attributes of God. Attributes of God that you and I will not take upon ourselves. Okay? I think you're going to like these. And uh, number one, God is a spirit. Or God is spirit. Understand that. God is spirit or God is a spirit. What does that mean? I have to tell you, I don't fully comprehend what that means. I know I don't. But I have to know it, and it's important God tells us this. Let me give you two examples in the Bible where God tells us this. Which side has John 4? Did I say 424 or 524? 4. Okay. Let's read John 424 together over here. Ready? God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, God, he's talking to the woman at the well, God is a spirit. Okay, this side over here, 2 Corinthians 3, verse number 17. Ready? Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God is a spirit. So, so what does that mean, all right? The fact that God is a spirit refers to the fact that he is non-material. He is non-physical. And to be honest with you, I don't have much more to tell you than that. Because I just barely comprehend that. We can sit philosophy about it all day long, but the fact is, have you ever seen a spirit? You haven't because they can't be seen, all right? There's something in that that God wants us to understand and, and maybe, or, or God wants us to know, and maybe someday we'll, we'll comprehend it. All right, God is spirit. Bang, we're done with that one. First attribute of God that we need to understand and non-transferable attribute of God. God is spirit. Let me give you some thoughts about it. This comes from John Dagg, who is one of the theologians that, that I've been studying as I've been going through these. John Dagg said this, quote, The term spirit is used to denote an immaterial or intelligent substance or being, one which is without the peculiar properties of matter. He is not extended, solid, or divisible like a rock, a tree, or a human body, but he thinks and wills in a manner free from all imperfection. Okay? This is not one of the commentators, but this is a, this is a, a, a man of God, Adam Clark says, this is one of the first, the greatest, and most sublime and necessary truths in the compass of nature. There is a God, the cause of all things, the fountain of all perfection, without parts or dimensions, for he is eternal, filling the heavens and the earth, pervading, governing, and upholding all things, for he is an infinite spirit. 
you've probably heard that the Native Americans, American Indians, whatever you call them, refer to the Great Spirit. Have you ever heard that phrase before, the Great Spirit? The fact is, even though their doctrine was wrong, that is, that is probably not a too bad of a name to give to God. The Great Spirit. God is not confined to a body which would limit him from controlling and filling the whole universe. Can we even possibly comprehend God is spirit, that God fills the entire universe? He said the span of the heavens is... is, is, is uh, the span of his right hand is as the heavens. They say the universe is 12 billion light years from one end to the other. That's God's right hand. Now, I don't believe, as we'll see in a second, that God has physical hands. But he's using something to help us see it. God's person fills the universe. God is spirit. Secondly, and this is tied to it, we've got three. So let's do this. Let's have all the men turn to John chapter 1, verse 18. Let's have the ladies turn to Colossians chapter 1. And let's have the teenagers and below, if you're 18 or under, male or female, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So all the men over 18, John chapter 1. All the ladies over 18, Colossians chapter 1, and all of the teenagers, uh, male and female, guys and girls, 18 and under, 1 Timothy chapter number 1, and I'll get to you in just a moment, and we go to characteristic, non-transferable attribute of God number 2. God is invisible. Now, this is very closely related to the first one. God is invisible. All right, I think we all know that, but it's something that my mind has to try to grasp. Now, let's, let's look what the Bible has to say about it. God is invisible. Men, John 1.18, read it with me, ready? No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, I just studied that verse the other day and about made me stand up and run around and shout the whole verse. But, but what we're focusing on is no man hath seen God at any time. And I think the important thing for us to take from that is, <clears throat> excuse me, we put so much stock in seeing. And how many times have you heard a person say, if I could just see God, I would believe him. God's invisible. So God's a spirit and he's invisible. Who's in Colossians 1? Ladies, Colossians 1 verse 15. Read that with me. Ready? Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And that, of course, is talking about Jesus Christ. And that's, that's a remarkable uh, paradox there, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's what you can see of the God that you can't see. So, 
Okay, pastor, explain that. I'm not sure I can. I mean, I could give you an explanation, but I think there's a lot that mm, we just got to soak in here. God is spirit. God is invisible. All right, teenagers, 1 Timothy 1.17. Read it with me. Ready? Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right? So there we have in three different uh, places where it just straight up says God is invisible. God is a spirit. God is invisible. Listen to this statement about God being invisible, and then we'll go to the third attribute of God. Though God can certainly take on tangible, visible characteristics, his essence and person is not limited to tangible attributes. Okay, let let me stop there and, and see if I can help us understand this. If I said, hey, look, God's over there, and you looked over there, and there's whatever he looked like, there's this human-looking body. If he's over there where we're looking, then by implication, he's, he's not over here. So to put him in a body limits him. God is not limited by... Tangible attributes. The person of God is infinitely bigger than to be restricted by physical traits. So we said God is spirit. God is invisible. Thirdly, and this might be my favorite one of the night because this one requires you to use your brain. We got to think a little bit to get this one. Okay, let me have uh, over here Deuteronomy chapter 6. And over here, 1 Timothy chapter 2. All right, Deuteronomy 6 over here, 1 Timothy chapter 2 over here. And this is a doctrine, and I'll give you the the doctrinal name first, and then the the practical statement or or, uh, heading. This, in if you read a book of theology, you're going to read in most of them under attributes of God, the unity of God. The unity of God. All right? Now let me put it into our words. God is one. Now next week, the entire message is going to be devoted to the Trinity. But before we can talk about the Trinity, three persons, one God, we have to understand God is one. Okay? Listen carefully. Here's the part that, uh, well, let's read the scripture first. Deuteronomy 6 over here. 6, verse number 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Okay? Over here, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5. Ready? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, i got to be honest, as I, as I have studied this over the years, it took me a while to grasp this because it seems like there's two different concepts being taught here, but there's not. It's one concept, and let's see if we can get it, all right? The unity of God, God is one. All 
that is deity in the universe is contained singularly in the person of God. God lacks nothing that is an attribute of deity. There's nothing that any God can be or do that God doesn't have or or can do. Therefore, God is the one and only God, for there cannot possibly be two beings that contain all of deity. So on one hand, the unity of God means that everything that a God could possibly possess is found in God. At the same time, it means the unity of God means there's only one God. And both of those things, each of them makes the other true. Let me give you a a silly example, all right? The three top burger fast food chains, okay? McDonald's. What's McDonald's thing? McDonald's thing is just cranking it out. You know, 50 billion, sir. We just crank it out. We get it out there, man. We just get the food out there. We'll, We'll feed you fast. Yeah. So here comes Burger King. Burger King. Uh, have it your way. Have it your way. All you children of the 70s, have it your way at Burger King. We used to sing this. In fact, we sang this so much in Pequannacong Elementary School that when we gave our concert with the choir, public school, when we gave our concert, the music teacher, Mr. Thatcher, let us sing this. This is our parody of that Burger King commercial. It went like this. Hold the pickle, squash the lettuce, shut up, lady, you upset us. All we ask is that you let us have it our way. That's good, isn't it? (laughs) Second graders made that up. We're brilliant. But anyway, so McDonald's thing was, man, we just crank out the food, baby. Burger King comes along, and what's their thing? Their thing is, we're going to sell burgers because we can do something that they can't do. We don't just crank it out. We're going to let you tell us what you do and don't want on your burger, and we're going to make it happen. That was their thing. Now, I think if you went to McDonald's and said, I don't want any ketchup on mine, they would do it probably. But, uh, but Burger King, no, they said, we're going to capitalize on this thing. Ah, we're not just cranking them out. We're going to take our time because you're the king. You're the king here. Wear the crown. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to do it the way you want. Then along comes Wendy's. What was Wendy's things? Where's the beef? Remember how where's the beef? Yeah. Flashback Sunday. Uh, where's the beef? And what was that? That's, hey, there ain't no beef in that hamburger. Which one? Either one of them. We're the ones with the beef. We've got the beef. Now it's probably the same artificial stuff there, but 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 they said we're hey, we're gonna make a, we're gonna make a a chain out of this. And actually, it wasn't about the quality of the beef, was it? It was about the size of it, was it? It's just so small, we can't see it. So we have square burgers and it hangs over the bun, you know? So they each brought a quality and they were able to make money because they make a claim of something that, in their opinion, the other guy can't do. Okay? That's why there can be three. And then come a, uh, come, who, who was think outside the bun? Is that Taco Bell or who is that? Okay. So Taco Bell comes along and says, well, we can do something they can't do. 
You go into the polytheistic societies of history, and what do they have? They have a God that can do this. They have a different God that can do this. They have a different God that can do this. So it makes sense you can have a multiplicity of gods because each God can do something the other God can't do. And what are they worth? They're about, about, worth about a, <laughs> a fast food uh, chain. But the God of the universe, there's nothing that he can't do. Amen. He lacks nothing. Everything that is good and great and God is found in him. So there cannot possibly be another one. Because all that is deity is found only in him. And that is the doctrine called the unity of God. Let me hear. I'll let you hear what John Gill says about this. I love this. John Gill, who was a uh, uh, Baptist preacher, I'm going to say in the 1700s, I believe, said uh, in England, he said, He is a fool that says there is not a God. He is equally so who says there are more than one. Tertullian, who was a a, a church father, not an apostolic father, but he was a preacher in the second century. Tertullian said, if God is not one, he is not at all. That's the unity of God. So we've talked about God as spirit. We've talked about God as invisible. We've talked about God as one. Next, God is perfect. Now, let's everybody turn to Matthew 5. God is perfect. Now, we use the word perfect to mean he never does anything wrong. And he doesn't ever do anything wrong. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and verse number 48. The word perfect, more than just meaning without sin, means complete. It means absolutely complete. And God is the epitome, the epitome of completeness. He's the epitome of lacking nothing. Matthew 5, 48, read it with me, ready? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. By the way, I'm giving you scriptures that state in one statement truths that are found through the whole Bible, but sometimes they're found throughout an entire chapter. Sometimes they're found, they're illustrated in a story. But I'm giving to you the, some of the places where they are stated in one sentence. That's what's called a proof text. It's where uh, a great truth is consolidated in one verse or one or two verses. Okay, so God is perfect. God is perfectly whole and complete. He has no lacks, no voids, no deficiencies, no faults, no shortcomings. God is not limited by flaws or demands. So, God is spirit. God is invisible. God is one. God is perfect. And last one for tonight. Let's go back to men, women, and teenagers, all right? Same group you were in a minute ago, unless you had a birthday in the last 10 minutes, all right? Let's have the uh, men, Deuteronomy 33. 
The ladies, Psalm 90, and the teenagers, Revelation 1. Men, Deuteronomy 33. Women, Psalm 90. Teenagers, Revelation 1. And here's non-transferable attribute number five tonight. We said, number one, God is spirit. Number two, God is invisible. Number three, God is one. Number four, God is perfect. And now, number five, God is eternal. God is eternal. Now, let me point out to you the difference between everlasting and eternal. Everlasting fits within eternal, but eternal is bigger than everlasting. How's that? Okay. Everlasting means it's never going to end. Okay, so assuming that this direction is the beginning and this direction is the end, everlasting means, okay, there may be a starting point right here, but it's an arrow that way forever. That's everlasting. It's never going to end. Eternal has an arrow going that way, but it also has an arrow going that way. So eternal had no beginning, no ending. I got to tell you, that's the one. I've never doubted God. I've just really tried sometimes, had a hard time understanding things about him. And that's the one when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I literally, I remember just laying across my bed and uh, uh, look outside my window. And uh, by the way, Dad, I was in the garage last week while you were gone and noticed that the rainbow sticker that used to be on my bedroom window is now on the garage window. You, you put that, that window out there. Pretty cool. So anyway... I would lay across my bed and look out that window, and it used to be outside that window a vacant lot where we used to go sleigh riding. And I was reminded of that uh, this past week when the, the uh, ice covering went over the, the, uh, the snow. Well, I don't remember having that in years, but when I was a little kid, uh, how, how many had those, those blue roll-up plastic sleds? Were those the coolest or what? And uh, you can keep your sled with the metal runners. Those things, you, you, you unrolled them and laid down on them. And you get on that, on top of that snow with the ice crust on top, nothing was going to stop you, including a stone wall. And I can attest to that. Nothing was going to stop you. And so anyway, but, but that, boy, I got way off the subject there. Let me get off the subject again. I'm laying across my bed looking out the window there to a vacant lot. That vacant lot's not there anymore. Here's some trivia for you. It is now the driveway. This is not, this is, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. It is now the driveway of a millionaire who was on in uh, President Obama's cabinet in his first term. That is the truth. And, and that's that. So anyway, so along comes a millionaire and takes away my good place to sleigh ride. But anyway, all right, so now that I've taken three detours, let me go back. I'm, I'm 10 years old laying across my bed, and I'm not kidding you. Hours and hours and hours of my childhood were spent looking out that window trying to comprehend that God is eternal. I mean, I would twist my brain saying, how can God not have a beginning? And now here we are, I'm saved and I'm not going to have an ending. 
It's got to end somewhere. It's got to end somewhere. Now, God gave me the answer to that eventually. And this may not satisfy you, but it satisfied my little philosophical brain. And that is this. Okay? And I'm not really, I'm not trying to help you understand eternity unless, unless you were challenged by it like I was. One day it dawned on me. Okay, let's suppose that God had to end someday. 50 gazillion, trillion, billion, sextillion, whatever other illings, years out there, God has to end because he just has to. Okay. The day after God ends, what will there be? Empty space, right? Because God had to end because he can't possibly go on forever, right? So there has to be. So the day after God ends, There'll be empty space with little fuzzies floating around, you know, that in a beam of sunlight, you can see the little, the lint, you know. That's what'll be the day after God ends, right? Because God has to end because he can't possibly be eternal. So the next day, there's going to be nothing. How long will nothing last? Well, nothing's going to be there forever after God ends. So if nothing can last forever... (laughs) So can an eternal, all-powerful God. And that cured it for me. I, was, I still, you know, this didn't help me. The figure eight, that's eternity, right? That doesn't help me a bit. But once I thought, hey, wait a second. If empty space can last forever, so can an almighty God. And I, I didn't struggle with it anymore. God is eternal. All right, you're in Deuteronomy 33. If you're there, that would be the man, I believe, 33, verse 27. And 33, Deuteronomy 33, 27. Read it with me. Ready? The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. The eternal God is thy refuge. All right? Ladies, you're in Psalm 90. Psalm 90, verse 2. Read it with me. Ready? Before the mountains were brought forth... Or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I love that because you know what everlasting to everlasting says? I can see the arrows when I read that. Everlasting that way to everlasting that way. Thou art God. All right, teenagers, Revelation 1, 8. Ready? I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Amen. All right, so God is eternal. What does it mean? God had no beginning and will have no ending. There has never been a time when God was not. God is not limited by time. Now, you can take all five of these. God is spirit, God is invisible, God is one, God is perfect, as in he's perfectly, completely whole, God is eternal, and there is all kinds of room for your mind to meditate and think on those things. All I did was give you a truth and show you from the Bible that the Bible says it's so. Now, you need to 
You need to soak it in. Let it soak into your mind and your heart. This is your God that we're talking about. Who is God? Oh, I want to know God. I have a passion for Christ. That's awesome. Now I'm giving you the science of God from the Bible. This is who your God is. God is spirit. God is invisible. God is one. God is perfect. God is eternal. Well, that's just the beginning. Let's close by reminding you some of the truths about Bible study that I'm going to give these to you probably every week or just about. First of all, our motive for studying God and Bible doctrine must always be a passion for God. Jeremiah 29, 13, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Secondly, our study of God and Bible doctrine must always be accompanied by genuine love. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And thirdly, our study of God and Bible doctrine should result in greater service for the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if you're rightly dividing the word of truth, you are qualified to be a workman who's not ashamed. So our study of God and the Bible doctrine should result in greater service for the Lord. I hope that was a blessing to you tonight. I hope your wheels are turning. And I hope that you will ponder the nature